Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Christian Chameleons by Pastor Sean Wood. Uh, Father, we, we declare that you are glorious. Your words are spirit and they are life. Ezekiel said, as the, as the Lord spoke to me, his spirit entered me. And that's what we pray this morning. Lord, we do pray a blessing on our ladies as they meet this morning also at the Sunshine Coast. Uh, Lord, that they would know your blessing and that you would speak into their hearts, but also this morning as we come around your word in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Uh, This morning, uh, I want to press the pause button on our series in Malachi. And my heart is to, uh, to speak a message to men, but also that applies to everybody today. Uh, if I said the name Jim Bacon, most people in this room here would have no idea who Jim Bacon is, and he's not the guy cooking breakfast on Saturday, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, he, won't, he won't be on the griddle, but Jim Bacon was a former Premier of Tasmania, and he may be known for many things, but he will be remembered for making the choice to spend $20 million on the then York Park to upgrade it to today's Aurora Stadium. And it was all in lieu of uh, being able to get the AFL teams to come down and play in Tasmania. And, and so uh, that was a big thing for us. It, uh, it was a big thing for us to ha- be hosting AFL teams. And at the time that this all happened, I had, uh, some people may know, uh, I had my own taxis. I had three of my own taxis. I had a raft of drivers. One of my drivers was a mad, keen Hawthorne supporter. Now, Ian, let me give you a little bit of background about Ian. If Ian was a fish, he would have been born at Lake Beer. <laughs> Just saves him drinking anything else. Uh, but uh, uh, Ian was a mad keen Hawthorne supporter, and so the first season Hawthorne played West Coast, I was a mad West Coast Eagles supporter. And so we go to the game, and uh, I get dressed up. I've got all the colours on. I've got my own West Coast Eagles guernsey. We couldn't get seats because we paid for the tickets too late, so we had to stand in general admission. And it was about the first siren. When the ball was about to be bounced, I I realised I'd made a tremendous mistake. (laughs) I was standing in my West Coast Eagles guernsey amongst a sea. An ocean of Hawthorne supporters. I did make the comment to my accompanying Hawthorne supporter who had no identification at all. He wasn't wearing a scarf, he wasn't wearing a Hawthorne Guernsey, he wasn't wearing a Hawthorne jumper. There was nothing to distinguish him at all. I did tell him he was a little bit chicken. In fact, you might have said he was a bit of a chameleon. The game goes on. It's a close game, it gets into the last quarter and the lead is swapping each time. Each time the Eagles are in a front, I'm making a big noise, all on my own by the way, you'd be pleased to know. Uh, and every time Hawthorne's in front, someone's rubbing me on the head, I'm tipping a beer over me and, and, and all those sorts of wonderful things. But Hawthorne won by two points. It was then that I realised that Ian was wearing some Hawthorne memorabilia. Recently he had been given a brand new shiny pair of Hawthorne boxer shorts and As I turn around, he's holding a beer in his hand with a big grin on his face, his pants around his ankles and the Hawthorne boxer shorts. I knew then I'm going home and I'm going home alone. (laughs) But you know what? Ian blended into the background. Couldn't tell he was a Hawthorne supporter. And there is a push today to push men into the background and to push Christians into the background. 
today I wonder whether many Christians are Christian chameleons where we adopt our surroundings around us and we can't be distinguished from anybody or everybody else. I can tell you at that football game, I stood out. I stood out like a sore thumb. And I had many sore parts. Everybody was doing this and uh, as they do when you're at a football game. And uh, it was the last one I went to, by the way, particularly with Ian. Uh, but, <laughs> but today I, I want to sound a trumpet to not just the men in the room today, but I want to sound a trumpet to everybody who names the name of Christ. It's time to step out of the shadows. It's time for us to step forward. And I, I want to ask you the question, what does that look like? Uh, what would that look like? And Jesus gave us an example and then said, follow me. And he asked us to do three things. And we're going to cover off those three things. And when we finish today, we're going to give it some legs and have a look at what it looked like for one man in scripture to stop being a Christian chameleon. Uh, when we ask ourselves the question, though, what is a man? It's interesting. Uh, I, I have to confess, uh, probably to my detriment, uh, I'm the kind of drink a cup of concrete and get over it kind of guy. Uh, I'm the kind of guy that would say, you know what, don't talk to me about the problems, just tell me about the solutions. I don't. Uh, and if you're whinging, uh, I'll have to give you a hanky. I'm that kind of guy. But Jesus actually doesn't model that kind of manhood. In fact, what I love that Jesus does model is Jesus models, in Luke it says, he sets his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. That means he was determined, I am going to Jerusalem and nothing or nobody will stop me. But on the way to Jerusalem, after he sets his face like flint, many will know that he becomes angry. He cleanses the temple. Now, he doesn't sin in his anger. Paul says to the Ephesians, in your anger, do not sin. But he becomes angry. He will weep at the tomb of Lazarus. He will weep over the city of Jerusalem. Many times the Gospel of John records his journey to Jerusalem for his Passion Week will include many moments where he is deeply troubled and agitated on the inside. This is not a man that is modelling manhood void of emotions, but this is a man that shows us what manhood really looks like. And I think the biggest question uh, recently, some will know that uh, recently that myself and some other leaders, we had to... Uh, confront some problems at a denominational level. And one of the final meetings was myself and two other guys had said we're going to meet with the leadership of the denomination. We were hoping for a positive result. It didn't turn out that way. Uh, we had walked through this for a long time. They brought in some guests, which we weren't aware of until we were walking up the stairs. Uh, but as we walked into the room, uh, one of the guests says, before we go any further, we, all of us have to answer one really important question. He says, we have to answer... What is it that we're willing to die for? Wrong question, right time. The question we all need to answer as men and as children of God, the number one question is, what are you living for? When you open your eyes tomorrow morning, what are you living for? Because then, what we're willing to die for is clearly definable. And when we look at the life of Christ, there's no doubt that he was always going to the cross. But he was living as an example and also for an example for us to follow. He laid down his life. 
This morning, uh, if you'd like to meet me at Mark chapter 8, I love the Gospel of Mark and I love this rendition, but a little bit of a little bit of background. What brings us to this verse, we're going to begin in verse 34 this morning, but what brings us to this verse is Jesus has taken his disciples to Caesarea Philippi and Jesus has asked them, who does everybody say that I am? Great question. Uh, interestingly enough, every answer is a supernatural, miraculous answer. <laughs> Everybody associated something supernatural with Jesus. For those that read the pastor's comments this morning, uh, everybody associated Jesus with the weird. He wasn't normal. He wasn't teaching the way everybody taught. He was, he was different and he was somewhat weird, but he was supernatural. But Jesus asked them a further question, who do you say that I am? That's the number one question. Uh, our vision here as a leadership is to help everybody answer that question. Who do you say Jesus is? Because that will radically transform your life, how you answer that question. And of course, we know how that goes. Uh, Peter makes the wonderful profession. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And, and from that profession, Jesus now wants to move them to possession. What we say with our words is one thing, but do we live a life that backs it up? And what does the life that backs it up look like? Jesus gives us three things that he wants us to do. And then we're going to have a look at what that looked like for one man. If you've begun in verse 34... It says, calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, he's now talking to the crowd as well as the disciples. He says, if, wonderful clause there, I want everybody to know that you have a choice this morning. This is not a you have to, this is everybody has the free choice to follow Christ. If you make the decision to follow Christ greatest decision you'll make in your life. I want to remove the fine print this morning and make it clear what Jesus says this looks like. It looks like men and Christian believers, children of God, who wake up tomorrow morning knowing what they're living for, knowing that they are serving a higher cause. I love the the last words about King David. I've been reading about King David the last couple of weeks and and the last words of King David are this, David fulfilled the purposes of the Lord for his life. Put that on my headstone. That's that's what I want on my headstone, that I fulfilled the purposes of the Lord. But, But have a look at David. David was always serving a higher cause. It's good not having anybody on the front row, by the way. I can get... I can can almost reach you, Ross. Good morning. But he was always serving a higher cause. It's interesting, you know, uh, when Samuel the prophet comes to anoint him, he's out with the sheep. You know, when David faces Goliath, they go, this guy's, this Philistine's going to chew you up and spit you out. And David says, hey, this isn't my first rodeo. I've been dealing with the lions and the bears the whole time. And you know what? So many Christians today forget one really important truth. We all want the spotlight and we all want the throne, but until you learn to serve God in the sheep pen, you are not going to the throne. You see, David's calling was not merely to be a king. It was to shepherd the people of Israel. He learned that. 
He was living for a higher cause. Here's what Jesus says. If anyone, notice that word anyone, underline that word anybody. This is available to everybody and it's available to anybody. And if you are sitting in this room today and you're saying, I'm a disciple of Christ, great, awesome. Well, here's what it looks like tomorrow morning when you open your eyes. If anybody would come after me, no second options here. There's not, notice how Jesus doesn't negotiate. If anyone would come after me, if any man would follow the greatest pattern of manhood ever given to us, here's what Jesus says. First of all, he will deny himself. Jesus has called us to deny ourselves. It looks like uh, the other Gospels say they must deny themselves. I want to ask everybody in the room this morning, men and children of God, I want to ask you, what is it that you must do? How many of us could answer that question in a whole lot of flippant ways? I must mow the lawns. I must wash the car. I must, we have all these lists that we have. Here's the number one thing that Jesus says, tomorrow morning when you open your eyes, you must Deny yourself. And it's a present imperative participle. That means every morning you open your eyes, this is what it looks like to follow Christ. That you set yourself aside, you take no consideration for yourself. We live, thanks to Steve Jobs, he highlighted, I think, Steve Jobs rode a wave, I think, that uh, was in culture already. He rode the I wave iPhone, iMac, iPad, because it's all about... We live in a culture today that is all about self-serving. Real men lay down their lives for the betterment of other people. And we will see today that the Christian call and true biblical manhood is, I will set my life aside to follow the king no matter what that looks like. And for those that read the pastor's comments this morning, you're going to look a little bit weird. We need men that are willing to swim against the current. If you look down through the history of church ages, you will always find fathers of the faith. Men that you could look at, they were like pioneers. Men that had decided, this is the course I'm going on, and they set their face like flint to follow Christ. They deny themselves, they lose sight of their own interests. They let go of selfish desires, but the big thing it looks like is surrendering to Christ and his will. We work our way through the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Our Father, hallowed be thy name. Huge one, that one. Uh, Thy kingdom come. Everyone's going, yeah. Then we get to thy will be done. Not my will, will. thy will. Hardest words in the universe. Jesus said those words in the Garden of Gethsemane and he sweat drops of blood. Men, Jesus doesn't want to be at the top of your priority list today. He wants to be the paper you write the priorities on. Jesus doesn't want to be the main room in your house. He wants to be the house.
If anyone would come after me, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross. First thing, three things that Jesus asks us. The first thing is deny yourself. The second one is to take up your cross. Notice that you have to take it up. Uh, can we answer the question? Let's get this question out of the road right now. Who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans or was it the Jews? None. None. Neither of them. He took up his cross. He willingly, I love how the passion portrays this, as Jesus hugging the beams of the cross as he's making. The passion was very kind to us. Uh, Although it was reasonably graphic, it missed out the fact that he would have been marched up that hill naked. But I love what Jesus says here. He says, take up his or her cross. Every one of us in this room have a cross to bear. Every one of us in this room have a road to walk. Every one of us in this room have a road to walk to the top of Golgotha where we have to lay down our own interests, where we have to set aside our will, where we have to set aside our agendas, where we have to you know, say, you know what? This isn't about me in the spotlight. This isn't about having my name on the door. This isn't about my international ministry. This is about serving God, loving him and loving his people wherever he puts me. That is what this is about. Taking up your cross, you will die to things that I don't need to die to. Like rugby. (laughs) Yes, the Wallabies are doing a good job of that for us at the moment. Again, this take up is in the present participle. Tomorrow morning when you open your eyes, step one, you have to deny yourself. Two, you have to take up your cross. Do you know every day it's a decision. Lord, I'm going to set myself aside. I set myself aside. I set my will aside. I set my agenda aside. I'm here to love your people. I'm here to love you. I'm here to serve you right where I am. I heard a wonderful, wonderful testimony by a young lady in America who's a FedEx courier. And she says, every morning I wake up and I say, God, please just use me where I am. And she's began talking to people and praying with them. And God is using her right where she is. Seemingly in America, the same people order the same things from the same place all the time. I don't. But she counters the same. God, use me right where I am in the supermarket. Uh, Friends, if you're wanting to be used of God, it looks like denying yourself and taking up your cross first. Deny yourself, take up your cross. Our sheds are filled with things that we take up, aren't they? There was a moment in time where I don't have any golf clubs in my shed, but I took up golf until I realised I had a revelation from the Holy Spirit. Sean, you are ruining a good walk. <laughs> but, but how many of our sheds are filled with things that we've taken up? I've had people come to me and say, you know what, I wouldn't mind, you know, I wouldn't mind having a go at fly fishing. You don't have a go at fly fishing. How dare you blaspheme? <laughs> you take it up. So many of us take up our cross, but how many of us put it back down and take it back up? And here's why you need church. 
Here's why church cannot be YouTube in an armchair at home. Because Jesus didn't make the journey on his own. He needed Simon Cyrene to help him bear his cross. And there's going to be moments in your life when you're going to need your brothers and your sisters in Christ to help you carry your cross. We all want the resurrection power. Friends, it lies on the other side of walking the hill to Golgotha. Jesus says, you must take up your cross. Deny yourself, take up your cross. And last of all, greatest invitation in the universe. And follow me. These sound like simple words. Many people in this room this morning have heard these words many, many times. But we need men that wake up tomorrow morning and go, this isn't about me, this is about him. This isn't about what everybody thinks of me. This isn't about how many friends I have on Facebook. This isn't how how many followers I have on Instagram or YouTube. It's got nothing to do with it. Friends, I'm going to let you in on a really holy secret right now. Your true friends aren't the ones on Facebook. They will unfriend you alongside of everybody else as quick as everybody else. Your true friends are the ones that will help you carry your cross to the top of the hill. Simon Cyrene, by the way, uh, becomes an early pillar of the church. His whole family is saved, including his sons. Church history reveals. Take up your cross and follow me. But what does that word follow mean? It means to cleave steadfastly to. And, And often when we think of the word follow, we think, well, we're trailing along behind. It's kind of like everybody who comes fishing with me. They're behind a long way when it comes to the catch rate. But this, that's not what this word means. It means accompanying one on a journey. The, the best way to see what this means is read the description in Luke 24 of the two that were walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They weren't following him all the way back there somewhere. They were following him right alongside. This isn't trailing Jesus from behind. This is intimate fellowship, walking step in step with Jesus. You can't do that until you deny yourself. You can't do that until you're willing to take up your cross because that's where Jesus is going. When Jesus says, anyone who comes after me must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me, it's estimated that in the life of Christ, there would have been at least, going on normal statistics, there would have been at least 3,000 crucifixions. When Jesus is saying to the disciples, take up your cross and follow me, they're most likely looking at bodies hanging on the cross. For whoever would save his life will lose it, Jesus goes on to say. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We need men and we need Christians that will lose their life for Christ. I'm not talking about physical martyrdom. I'm talking about daily opening your eyes and saying, I live for Christ. What does this look like? 
How can we best wrap our minds around what this looks like? I'm glad you're asking really good questions this morning. Uh, You can follow me to John chapter 19 or you can read it for yourself later. But I want to introduce you, John chapter 19, verse 39. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea. I want to introduce you, as we put some legs on what this looks like this morning, I want to introduce you to a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. You will read of Joseph in every one of the gospel accounts, but here's what you need to know about Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a Pharisee. He was a member of the ruling council. So the ruling council was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, which is interesting because both of them diametrically opposed each other when it came to theology. But Pharisees and Sadducees, there were 70 people on the ruling council. Being on the ruling council wasn't about what you knew. It was all about who you knew that could usher you in. So Joseph is a very prominent, socially affluent guy. He's enormously wealthy. But Joseph has got a problem. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Christ, but secretly. I'm going to let everybody, apart from the Vatican, which doesn't count, (laughs) apart from the Vatican, which doesn't count, I want you to know that Jesus does not have a secret service. Jesus doesn't have an FBI, CIA... Collingwood supporter. There's no secret service. The life that Jesus lived, the teachings that Jesus taught, the example of his death and resurrection leaves only one line and we must choose what side of the line that we are on. Joseph of Arimathea is a very wealthy man. He has a lot to lose. Chapter 12 tells us that many believed in Christ. Many of the ruling authorities believed in Christ, but for fear of the Jews, they would not confess publicly because they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. And we read that today. You can read chapter 12 and you read, okay, they're, what, they're going to throw them out of church? Well, that's all right. They'll just go to the church down the road, won't they? No, not in the first century. That's like the, 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 the story about the, the, the Navy boat guy that's sailing through the Pacific and he comes to a deserted island. Has everybody heard this story? The Navy captain comes to a deserted island and he sees a pillar of smoke rising from the island. And so he puts out a little boat and takes some men with him and when they get to the shore, they see three buildings, smoke rising from one and one guy comes running down to the shoreline to meet them. And the captain says, look, nice to meet you, but where's the others? And the guy says, others? And he says, well, I couldn't help but notice when I got here on the shoreline that there's three buildings. The guy said, oh, sorry. He says, that one over there is my house. That one over there is my church. And the captain says, yeah, but what's that one? That's the church I used to go to. (laughs) That's not what it was like in the first century. To be put out of the synagogue in the first century was uh, akin to being cancelled today. That word's getting thrown around. Oh, I better be careful in case I get cancelled. Do you know what? 
when you haven't when you haven't got anything, it doesn't matter whether people cancel you, right? If you haven't got anything to lose. But but that's what this was like. And so people would become careful about what they would say. They would become careful about what they would do because to be put out of the synagogue was to be put out of the Jewish community, which meant you couldn't buy, sell, trade. All of your income was cut off. Joseph had everything to lose. He might lose his wealth. He might lose his social prestige. And so he's going to become a secret disciple. Maybe that describes some people in the room this morning. Maybe you're worried about what everybody will think on Facebook if you let them know you're coming to church. He's the greatest witness you can do. Use Facebook for something constructive. Put on there, I'm going to church to worship the king. Let all of your friends know. See how many hang around. But we live in a culture today where everybody's careful about, we've got to be careful what we say. We don't want to offend this people group or that people group. We don't want to offend anybody or upset anybody. If you say that, pastor, people might run down the road to the other church. If Jesus was alive today and he was a pastor, they would sack him. John chapter 6, he's got hundreds of followers. One sermon, they're all gone. And he turns to his disciples and he says, do you want to go as well? Peter says, to whom shall we go? Joseph stood to lose a lot. But you can't go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus and think that this won't be noticed. Let's keep reading on. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. That is astounding. Uh, those, uh, what Rome would do with criminals is there was only allowed to be close family that could bury criminals. But if you were crucified, don't forget to be crucified under Roman law, you had to uh, have some kind of political agenda. That's what Jesus is charged with, undermining Rome. And they would leave your body for the vultures as an example to everybody else. But Pilate gives Joseph permission to take down the body of Christ. And everyone in the ruling council is going to know exactly what Joseph is doing. No more chameleon for Joseph. No more hiding in the shadows. We need men and children of God today that will come out of the shadows and say, I don't care what everybody thinks. I don't care what anybody says. I'm going to live for Christ. And when we see the value of the one hanging on the cross, we won't care what synagogue they put us out. We won't care what they counsel us from. We won't care what anybody says. Uh, Jesus made it clear in John chapter 6. He didn't come to gather a group of followers. He came for dedicated disciples. He wasn't drawing a crowd. But secretly, for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body, Nicodemus also. And he's an interesting little dude. And Nicodemus is also a member of the ruling council. We're not told whether Joseph of Arimathea is, is a disciple of Christ. We're not really told whatever happens with Nicodemus, but we do see in their life that something dramatically changed. Nicodemus, we all know Nicodemus from chapter 3, right? We all know Nicodemus comes and says, uh, 
teacher, you've got something that I don't have. That's basically what he's saying. What Nicodemus is saying to Jesus is, I'm the ruling, one of the ruling authorities in Israel and Jerusalem, and I don't have what you have. Jesus says you've got to be born again. And we're not told anything in John chapter 3. We see a very inquisitive Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We see that by the time we get to John chapter 7, Nicodemus is standing up for Jesus going, you know what, is it, is it customary for us to convict a man before a trial? But now these two men do something deeply, deeply profound. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Why would John tell us that? Because 75 pounds of mixed aloes and spices was the exact amount you would have if you were preparing a body for a royal funeral. Something happened in here. Something happened inside of Joseph and Nicodemus where they said... This is not a criminal. This is not some guy stirring up trouble. He is a king. Verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden there was a new tomb. If you're sitting here today thinking to yourself, what does it look like to stop being a Christian chameleon? What does it look like? It looks like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus that set aside everything of their own reputation. They lose their reputation. They lose their social standing. They don't care what everybody says about them. They don't care what everybody thinks about them. They see Jesus as the king. Recently, I was astounded to learn of the price that people will pay to go to the Super Bowl in America. The cheapest seat you can get at the Super Bowl is $1,600. The most expensive seat is $11,500. Sounds astounding, right? Here's the most astounding fact. Not one of those seats is empty. What has everybody at the Super Bowl got to say to us? When you value something high enough, you'll pay anything. And what is Joseph of Nicodemus? Joseph of Nicodemus. What is Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus saying to us this morning? When you see Jesus as the king, no price is too small. Hallelujah. Friends, I've got some good news this morning. Jesus is inviting every one of us to come out of the shadows and follow him. But Joseph and Nicodemus tell us there's no cheap seats. There's no secret service. We need men that are going to lead their families and stay, say, just like Joseph, as for me and my household, we will serve Let's pray.
Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open the eyes of every one of our hearts to see Jesus the same way Joseph and Nicodemus did, the same way the disciples did, open our eyes with inside of our hearts that we would see Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray that not only men, but every believer would step out of the shadows and take a stand for the King and say, I live for Jesus. Jesus, we declare, you are worthy. We declare that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, and I pray you would move every one of us on our journey from profession to possession. Tomorrow morning when we open our eyes, Holy Spirit, we will need your help. We need you to help us to set ourselves aside, to take up our cross and to follow the King. And what a glorious invitation that is. I pray that each one of us would not count what it is that we will lose but that we would realise the immeasurable glory that we will gain by following the King of Kings. In your wonderful name we pray. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.